All right, we're back. I'm joined as always with John Marcus, and this is the Magnus and Marcus podcast. Unfortunately, for the first episode in, I don't know, three or four, we aren't sitting next to each other at a coffee shop. Yeah, bizarre. But don't worry, <laughs> I have a, a cup of coffee right now, actually cold brew. So we're well caffeinated, at least up here in Portland. <laughs> you guys are always caffeinated in Portland. Oh, yes. I like, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Um, so this, this week we decided to take on a little bit of a different topic. Um, what does it really take to make it post-collegiately? And, you know, in talking off interview before this, uh, we kind of jokingly <laughs> called this the dream crushing episode. Okay. Yes. Without and, a doubt. <laughs> yeah. And that's not, I don't see that as a negative, negative thing. I think it's more of a reality of what you have college athletes, um, what they think professional track and field is going to be like, or a post-collegiate track and field. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned briefly that kind of, you know, going into 2016 and uh, Olympic year and the craziness that that brings and the expectations that that brings, that makes it uh, this this mismatch between what's expected and what is reality uh, much, much higher. So... Um, we, we both live in that world of both college and, and post-collegiate uh, sports, which I think is, gives us a nice entertaining view because we get to see it from the college athlete who's kind of this naive, uh, enthusiastic um, dreamer. And then we get to see what the, the reality is with our post-collegiate athletes and all that that we're, uh, we're going into. So uh, why don't you, you start us off, John? Yeah, I think, you know... There, there's we're, we're crushing dreams. Or actually, we're just we're giving people a reality check. We just want to check them and just let them know, hey, this is what it's like. And it's honestly really scary and harsh world. I mean, Steve and I, you know, we recruit two types of athletes. You know, collegiate athletes, obviously for our collegiate teams, and then post collegiate athletes. And I always tell post collegiate like I don't recruit post-collegiately because I spend my professional life as a college coach recruiting high school um, <laughs> athletes. So I don't have time or the desire to recruit you know, 22, 23-something-year-old men and women to convince them to come, move to Oregon, move to Portland, and to work with me. I mean, if you want to, great. You know, I think Steve has the same tenor because that means you've done your homework as an adult and you've figured out where it might be a good fit for you. Um, you know, and just coming off the tail of this kind of quote-unquote recruiting season for the post-league athlete where we're soliciting uh, or getting solicited with a lot of calls or emails or considerations um, as people are finishing up their collegiate you know, the reality is everybody wants to move from infrastructure to infrastructure. And honestly, that's not, you know, not the reality in place, save for the 1% few that get that big time, you know, or even little time contract deal um, fresh out of college. I mean, honestly, you have to look at yourself as a starving artist. And, you know, it, what, what makes you different or more special or more talented than, you know, the person in a very similar conference to you who qualified, you know, uh, to NCAA championships, ran school records, this and that. I mean, I remind people in the post-season world, 
it's a highly, highly competitive endeavor. Every single person on that line is an NCAA champion or NAI champion, you know, conference record holder, conference multiple time conference champion, all American, multiple time all American, school record holder. That's every single person on the line, you know. So to think that just because you're in whatever conference and you won four years your conference title in the fifteen hundred to make that makes you special or unique. You know, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, you know, I kind of equate it to um, this mentality where you post-collegially have to have power five conference talent, but a mid-major mindset. And if you have that mid-major mindset where you're that blue collar scrapping for every, you know, um, advantage, just trying to get here, hustle yourself there, you know, very relentless, then you have a shot. But the reality, I think, sometimes, or the ideal versus the reality sometimes gets lost because you have all this infrastructure laid out in college, your travel's taken care of, you have per diem, your hotel's not a big deal, you can get on a track whenever you want, you have a weight room, you know, training table, you have athletic trainers, you know, some programs have nutritionists and sports psychologists. You have your bills taken care of with scholarships, da-da-da-da. Like, it's a pretty cush deal. And then you go on to this harsh and scary reality where not a whole lot of people care how fast you're in or what titles you got except for a select few. And then you get to, like, July, early August, and all of a sudden you don't get that big shoe contract or even that small shoe contract gig. And now you're, now you're left holding the bag and trying to figure out, how do I get this done? How do I still... Train, live, compete, eat, have a roof over my head and clothes on my back and be faster and more competitive than I've ever been. And that's a really tall order. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think you uh, hit the nail on the head there is that if you look at post-collegiately, like everyone's good. So everyone who comes out is used to being the number one guy on their team by far right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's used to being the top dog who had the talent and work ethic and all that stuff. And when you get into this distilled world of post-collegiate running, like that's everybody. That means if you, if you're lucky enough to go to some awesome group, like every single other person you're training with had that same experience. And I think that that is something that's overlooked and can sometimes be humbling. Um, And if you're not ready for it, humbling in a very very interesting way. Um, but I, I think that one of the points you made is that part of making that self uh, or that, that transition is be, being self-aware of what you are and what you bring to the table. Okay, Because I think, I think there's a big misnomer on, on expectations, whether it's from contracts you're getting and support you're getting. Um, Honestly, for the vast majority of people, the support you got in college will be so far superior than the support you get post-collegiately. I mean, that, that's true for almost any, any program whatsoever. Um, <coughs> so, you know, I think a lot of times what you see is one of the biggest mistakes people make is they, they come out of college and ask the question of, what do I get? Okay? And it's, it's this this concept of like, well, do I get travel covered? Do I get this contract? Do I get this gear? Yep. Do I get, you know, a massage or whatever? And, and they get caught up in like, well, at this place I get this, at this place I get this. And yes, those are all good things, but instead you have to switch the mindset. It's not what you can get. It's what what can you actually do? Like, yes. what, what place can you go 
that will fit with your personality, your environment, your training that can help get you to that next level. Okay, because if you look at if you look at uh, I don't know if you look at the Africans, for example, or mm-hmm. if you look at um, or if you look at again drugs excluded, the Jamaican sprinting, like they don't train in the best places all the time. They don't have all the massage and extra stuff. And they're, right. and I think we get caught up into thinking that these are the keys to success. This this little two percent here, when we forget that you know what we do in this ninety five percent, ninety eight percent is what actually should matter. Right. I think you know that's the wrong question to ask. What what do I get for what I've already done? Yes. The thing, like I tell you know people who are successful postgraduately. They have to understand, or the people who have, you know, a, you know, opportunities to have a, you know, good contract or solid contract or even a contract period coming out of college, they've done something that's blown people's minds. You have so think about this. Like, what have you done that's blown people's minds? Alan Webb had, you know, this huge contract because of the high school kid in three fifty three that blew everyone's mind. Yep, you know. Christian Serratos has a nice deal with Adidas because here's this mid-major guy from Montana State who's going up against Edward Chesrek and has a legit shot to win. He ran 355 for the mile indoors. That blew people's minds. It's, so it's not to say like that you know he might be the best miler coming out of the NCAA. He, you know, the guy's never even won an NCAA title, so to speak. But from what position he was in and the space he was in the year before, you know, getting beat indoors in the big sky mile to the year next year, almost winning the NCAA title and running a 355 mile, that blew people's minds. You know, it, it, and so you have to understand when everyone's very, very good and everyone's very talented and capable, you have to take the posture that what you're doing is trying to blow people's minds if you don't take that type of posture with your training or the environment you're into, then you're just another run-of-the-mill, you know, post-collegiate runner, and you get a, you know, maybe get some accoutrements and post on social media, look at me and all my free gear. But you know what? That gets real trite real quick <laughs> because, you know, it's just stuff. And some of the best runners and some of the most ferocious competitors I know are people who just do it for the pure love of it and who are, you know, artists who are putting a lot of passion into things. You know, great example is Mark Wazorek, formerly now Brooks. You know, Wizzo, he's been with OTC. Then he was unsigned for many years. And then he was signed by Brooks. And now he just got his contract dropped by Brooks. You know, it's not that Mark Wazorek is not really, really good. The guy's been to every single U.S. um, championship he's tried out for in a seven, eight year span or something crazy like that, you know, but Wizzo does it because Wizzo's passionate as an artist about, you know, competing and achieving at the highest level. For him, he's really thankful that he even gets a little bit of a deal here or there, or that he had an opportunity to be taken care of for a couple years because he gets it. There was an interim when he was with nobody before he got picked up by Brooks and he really had to question whether, you know, he really wanted to do that. And the resounding answer was yes, because again, I think the artist type mentality is the one that um, ends up having longevity in the sport because you're going to only have a deal if you do get one for a couple years. And, you know, Steve and I know 
having having worked on you know the postcollegiate side here is those deals are short and harsh and there's contract reductions laced with them there's very very minimal base amount of guaranteed pay you know i mean gear is the easiest thing in the world to get i tell people i go we can get on the phone and call a sports marketing rep from any company and it's like hey here's some gear easy life's easy like oh that's cool what you know what's the more important thing is the people component the interpersonal component is the coach and the environment that you're working with does that suit your personality and your demeanor do they know you do they take the time to get to know you the person and bond with you and i think sometimes it's so overlooked for the other material accoutrements that people think they need or the resources they think they need have to have to be successful because we're just you know keeping up with the joneses here of like oh well they have altitude tents I need altitude tent to be successful. That's five thousand dollars. I don't know. It's like no, come on, seriously. Let's let's be real here. (laughs) That's very true. There's a big component of of trying to keep up with everyone and keeping up with the latest fad and spending money to spend money, which I I Mm. think is you know a detriment to your development in the sport. But I, I think that's a great point is is that starving artist mindset like is the one you have to adopt because for the vast majority of people in our sport, I mean, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reality of it. And even if you get that big contract, right, you're, you're only going to have it for a couple of years. I mean, the, the window of opportunity for those contracts is very small. And if an injury happens or something else happens – Hell, even, you know, in the past, there's been, you know, people reduced for pregnancies and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Like, it's a vicious, vicious world. And that contract doesn't, doesn't hold up that long. So if you're, if you're looking at it as this, like, oh, I'm, I'm set, I'm going to take this big contract with this, um, this, you know, all this stuff that comes with it, and this is going to be the key well, forgetting the important parts of the sport, well, forgetting why you're doing it in the first place, or forgetting, well, is this the best fit for me athletically? Mm-hmm. Then you're missing, you're missing the boat. And I think, um, I think that's one of the central mistakes that you see people come out of college making sometimes is they're like, okay, here I am, I've done this, where's my money and where are you going to stick me, Right. I mean, I was, uh, I, I ran into uh, Leah O'Connor's mom at, at, at dinner one time, or lunch at, in Eugene, and we were talking, and I was like, the best thing that she could have done right now is stick with her current college coach, because she seems really, really good in that environment. And with mm-hmm. another steeple partner like Nicole Bush out there, I was like, it makes sense you know, and talking to them. And I think that's something that's overlooked is like that environmental component is, and that could be with your college coach. It could be somewhere new. It doesn't matter, but it's like that environmental component and that clicking in with the coach and the group is probably the biggest factor that I think people should look for, but often they, they kind of neglect for the sexier stuff. Yeah. And I think sometimes though, that's a product you know, maybe you're a product of youth or a product of yeah. uh, inexperience, really, is you get out of this collegiate system that's so well organized. I mean, USATF, um, you know, we always joke that we, you know, America has the best farming 
farm team system in the world, and it's the collegiate system, and rightfully so. You got you know Canadians, international students who come here and get a lot of you know very good development with a lot of very knowledgeable, good coaches in the collegiate ranks and amazing resources. But then you know you transition out of that, and you really have to look at where is and what is the best fit. Sometimes it is with your college coach, but sometimes it's really not, and it's not a knock on any college coach, but you know, Chris Linsky's a great example. You know, Chris is a good friend, and his first year when he was a collegian or out, or out of being a, a collegian in the post-collegiate world, he still was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and he was still hanging out with all his friends on the Wisconsin team, who were still college guys. And the you know l- degree of competitiveness for the NCAA versus the U.S. or world stage is this big canyon of difference. and But he was still doing things like going to Tuesday night pub trivia, <laughs> hanging out with the guys on the weekend, playing beer pong. You know, and Jerry Schumacher finally said, Chris, like, you have to stop living like a college kid. You can't do that. You're trying to be a professional, world-class runner. And you get away with it at the NCAA level doing that because you're super talented. But guess what? Everyone in the post-collegiate world is, super, if not more talented, just as talented than you are, and you can't afford you know, to do, live like this anymore. And it was a crystallizing moment for Slinsky because, you know, he didn't have the best first year out of college, even though there was no in necessary environmental transition. It had to be a mind shift transition. And so I always caution people who stay in their college scene and in college environment with their college coach, you know, just because it worked in college doesn't mean it's going to work post-collegiately because, you have to make that environmental shift in your own mind. And sometimes that just takes a physical removal from the environment and going to a whole new place to, to get away from that. Because the pull of all your college buddies or friends or the lifestyle is sometimes too great and too enticing, especially in the most vital part of the year, which is the foundational months of September, October, November, and December. So... You know, you got to straddle that reality as well. I don't think people, some people just, you know, we want to go with what works. We want, oh, this is certain, is going to work. And really, the way you know it's going to work is not because it worked in the past, but because the people you're with have a very, you know, um, open mindset. They're willing to create a dialogue. I mean, uh, you know, with the athlete, like I always encourage athletes, like it's so, it's so much your career and your you know, ambitions that my job as a coach or whatever type of role I have in your support network is to help guide you to the direction you want to go and be that GPS on that, um, on that map for you to, and the markers about, yep, yep, mm-hmm, you're right, you're on the right path, this is it. Or, whoa, whoa, whoa you can't be doing this anymore. You got to stop. Like, you can't be going out and hanging out with, you know, going to concerts every weekend. And feel and know that you can get away with it and still train at a very high level. Um, so I think sometimes too, that has to be paid homage to about that harsh reality. Yeah, you know, one of the things I found in dealing with a lot of young postcollegiates coming out is that they really lack this, um, and it's understandable because they're young and don't know what to do about it. Is they really lack this like mentorship of what it actually means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I remember going out when I was in grad school and training with Alan Webb, and like it, 
I, I thought I knew what hard training was and commitment was because, I mean, I ran up to 120 miles a week in, in, in college, right? So I'd, I'd done the grind thing and didn't really go out and all that stuff. But it really took it to another level, the professionalism that existed within Alan's kind of uh, environment and what, what that consisted of uh, to extreme levels, which sometimes would be good, sometimes would be bad. But um, And then in dealing with a couple newer post-collegiates that I, I've been working with lately is, is that, you know, I think there's this real need for what does that encapsulate? Like, what does that, what does that mean? And I think that's one of the advantages you have of, of going to a, a group setting where there's others to help guide you if they're willing to do that. But I think in the, if I was a, a college kid coming out of the NCAA system, like I would reach out to friends and mentors um, who had gone through it the year or two before or, before or beyond that to get an understanding of what the expectations of of a professional athlete are because I think that just as when you go from high school to college, you have to adapt and mold (laughs) into this collegiate system of what it takes to be successful in this environment. I think the same thing happens has to happen, as you said, from college to pro. And unlike the college system where you go to a college team that let's say is good or has the right environment, like you naturally mold into it based on what others are doing when you go post-collegiately, unless you go into one of these few clubs, is is that that natural mold doesn't occur. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the 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 transition phase is a lot longer, I think, post-collegiately, um, because you're so much more on your own. And, you know, you don't have the, again, the infrastructure where you can just walk around campus and everything you need is right there. You know, you may have to drive on your own to the better running trails to run a softer surface for your recovery runs rather than running on the roads, depending where you're living. You know, you may have to, you have to schedule your appointments with your massage therapist or your chiro, you know, or, or your, um, you know, get to get your blood work done or this or that. Like, you have to you know, wait for gym time whenever you have that gym time available, depending on what the situation is, you know, or even getting on a track, like just getting on a track to do a track workout can sometimes be a huge barrier and obstacle. Uh, You know, if you're, if you're in a town that doesn't have a lot of public tracks, because a lot of city or a lot of school, whether the high school or college tracks, they don't let people from the outside on who um, are, aren't associated with that scholastic team. And even alumni, like I know Leo Manzano, right? You know, Texas alum. The guy can't work out on the Texas track because it's just the rules in place by the university, even though you know, he's silver medalist, like you know, one of the best middle distance runners this country has. So, you know, to, so to think that it's all just peaches and cream, and even if you go to the, the, the more established groups like um, with a lot more backing and funding, um, like the Nike groups or, you know, New York or New Jersey, New York, uh, track club, you know, with gags and, um, you know, even Brooks beasts over there in Seattle. It's like, you know, it's not what you think it is a lot of times. And more often than not, I see, and I talk to and counsel the 25, 26 year old, athlete who's been doing it for a couple of years who thought they were going to the best situation who was training at a high level but then got hurt or then or maybe really was training really well in workouts but just never was able to put together on race day for whatever reasons i mean and two the reality is 
a lot of times your coach is not going to be there on race day, if, especially if you're in a group type setting. The coach may be training you know, 10 to 15 or 20 people, and on any given weekend, it's like, hey, all right, you're going to Los Angeles for a race, you're going to Portland, you're going over to New York, okay, you're going to Boston, all right, guys, go get it, go, good luck, or you're going to Canada. I mean, the coach is not necessarily going to make that trip and hold your hand, so you have to get on the plane navigate your hotel situation, all this type of stuff. And this is sometimes where an agent comes into play if you, you know, if it warrants having one, but to help navigate and set up that itinerary for you. But nine times out of ten, you're the one doing it on your own. So if you're not highly self-reliant, if you can't just figure it out as you go, if you don't have that mentality, it's going to be a really tough transition into the post-collegiate world. Yeah, that, that self-reliance is probably the biggest factor there is. I mean, yeah. not, not to mention just going to domestic meets. Think about getting dropped off or flying over to Europe and having mm-hmm. to find some random random apartment in, in Belgium, for example. And, and you're on your own and just doing it, right? right. I mean, that, that, is, that is the norm a lot of times. Like, mm-hmm. Even if the agent sets up the flights and the hotels and stuff like that, it's still you traveling and... Hopefully you're, you know, you find your group over there and you, you get things organized, but it's still you alone and yeah. another country trying to figure it out. And yeah. Be, yeah, and that's yeah, you know, that's that's a huge component that I think sometimes is missed. You know, even on the on the college side of things, like that's one of the ways why we uh, I tend not to you know, over, uh, over coddle my college kids. And because it's, it's a tendency of the collegiate system to have everything ready and set and you're so used to it. But if they're the ones who are going to go on and compete post-collegiately, it's a detriment to them. So developing that independence and that self-reliance is probably the biggest thing you have because mm-hmm. at the end of the day on, on the post-collegiate side, it's, it's your career. You're the one who's going to care the most about it. Okay. Obviously, you hope your coach and your supports team, and if you're in the right place, cares. But you're the one who's most invested, so you have to look after it and protect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very wise words. And you know, and how you s- create a support network for your career is also different too. It's like when you're in college, you know, if you're going to you know University of Arizona, you, it's just all University of Arizona where you have all these people in place, these employees of the university, the coach, the athletic trainer, the sports and conditioning person, the sports psychologist, sports nutritionist, you know, the director of ops, the, da, 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 da. That's, that's your support team. You don't have to decide. They already have it set up. Post-collegiately, though, you have to make your support network. So, you know, your coach, your agent your own PT, your own Cairo, your own massage therapist. Like you have to go out and find those people. And yeah, you can have people referred to you by the coach or the agent if you have an agent. Um, but at the same time too, we have to have a different view about what people's roles are. Like, you know, nine times out of 10, people have this narrow scope about what the coach is. And the coach is just the person that, you know, prepares you physically, mentally, and emotionally for it. But there's going to be other people who you can lean on for support, whether there are other coaches themselves who maybe is someone you lean on for, hey, maybe I'll call them and, 
if I'm really frustrated about things in life, I can talk to this person. You know, maybe that's your college coach, or maybe your high school coach, or maybe another person you met on the the circuit, you know, years back, or another athlete. You know, so you have you can develop a much more robust support network as a post-collegiate than you could collegiately because you were wedded to the personnel um, tied to that institution. So, you know, it takes a village to raise a child without doubt. <laughs> it takes same thing. It takes a village to, you know, get an athlete healthy and happy and ready to kick butt of the starting line. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that's the great thing about, uh, about running post-collegiately that I think you see is that it is kind of a nice community, right? Because you... <laughs> You see the same people at different meets. You see the same people at internationally, um, and there's a lot of support if you let yourself into it. And one of the right. things I've seen is that people who embrace that, like, really take advantage of 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 leaning on those who have done it for years, like, you know, who have been on the European circuit for the last five, six years, right? And have done it all. Like if you ingrain yourself in that and get to know those people, then it it helps your career so much more. And I've seen it the opposite where sometimes people get, you know, go from this college environment of like, well, it was, you know, University of X versus the world. And like, we just did our own thing. And, and that's how I'm going to continue this is, and they kind of do their own thing and, and on the on the post-collegiate side. I think they run into problems once they don't know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's why I always tell someone coming out is like embrace others. Right? Yes. It's like the 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 running world is such a small world that almost everyone, as long as you're nice, like you'll get along with people. And you're gonna, and people will be willing to help you, even competitors, if you, you know, are appreciative of it. Of it, but yeah, yeah. I think that you know the you know wisest examples um, you know we can use about athletes who have really embraced others and who have a good you know good rapport with a lot of their fellow competitors on the circuit are you know two guys we know really well, um, Tommy Schmitz and Will Lear. You know, you look at Tommy, like Tommy is just a great human being and, you know, Steve coaches Tommy. But Tommy just rolls around, essentially just rolls around, you know, the U.S. circuit and the European circuit with no real plan, but he just is so known by so many people and he has that rapport with so many people. He can just say, hey, you got an extra bed, you got an extra, like, couch, you know, can I hop here, can I do this? Like, you know, he doesn't really have any plan, so to speak, when he goes to a meet, sometimes I even have to remind Tommy for meets I put on, hey, Tommy, you need to declare if you're actually running the meet. FYI. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's instead of getting upset, Tommy, I just know that's Tommy. Um, but he's someone that, you know, has that capacity to also just link up with other people for workouts or long runs or easy runs, like if he's up in altitude or, you know, down in Houston or over in California, he just finds people to get along with. Same thing with Will Lear, you know, Will's kind of been everywhere as well, Michigan, Flagstaff, you you know, uh, Southern California, back to Eugene. And he's just found a way to maintain those relationships and just be able to integrate with what other people are doing. And as long as it makes sense for what he's doing, he'll talk to his coach, Warhurst, uh, Ron Warhurst, about, hey, here's what OTC is doing up in Flag today. What do you think? We need to pop in with them. Or, oh, man, I'll just go for an easy run with you know, these guys, uh, Ron down Eugene or wherever else. And 
it's allowed them the capacity to continue to strengthen relationships, but also continue to train and continue to thrive as they're getting into their early 30s when most people are getting out of the sport at that age. So they're, they're wise people in that regards to look to as role models about how to really um, create this relationship where you're very open and embracing others rather than this closed off fixed mindset of me against the world. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's some good lessons to le- learn there, even though Tommy's kind of crazy. He's figured out his way of the world and, and how to, how to make it work. I'm always impressed by what he pulls off. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing I wanted to talk about and I always talk about with people is like, this is a good one, Steve, and I'll pose a question to you and then I'll feedback on what you have to say is, how do you know or when should an athlete solicit the services of an agent? I think that one's one we should talk about because you need to know when, to, when an agent and why an agent exists and how an agent can be of value to you, but you, know, you just don't get an agent just to say you have an agent. <laughs> Exactly. No, I I deal with this one a lot because I deal with athletes a lot who are on that edge of that bubble of, well, do I need an agent or do I not need an agent? And um, I mean, Tommy is a great example. He's he's had an agent. He's not had an agent, okay? Um, Because he's he's figured out the system of how to get places that he needs to go. And what I always say is, agent is good for a couple things, okay? First, it's good for for getting you into meets at, at certain levels, right? Mm-hmm. At certain levels, you'll probably need an agent to get into meets. Um, B, they're, they're valuable for negotiating shoe company contracts, right? So if you're at the level that you need a, a contract negotiated, then obviously that makes sense. Um, those are my two, my two big things. Obviously, they, they do other things beyond that. But what I look at is, is with... With athletes, I tell them, what can you do on your own, okay? And would you be enhanced if you had an agent, mm-hmm. okay? So I always give the example of, of Tommy a couple of years ago, set up his entire European season circuit by himself, right? Um, and set up the, and just emailed people and got into meets and got into good meets that he wanted to get on that kind of second level circuit. And he didn't need an agent to do that. Okay. And he wasn't running times at, at, to need someone to negotiate any sort of contract or make con- contact with anyone like that to be able to do that. Okay, So in those regards, I think those are the two biggest things. I think most people have this misnomer, misnomer where they think, oh, I need an agent to make it. Okay, mm-hmm. You need an agent if you need to make that next step of what you can't do on your own. Right. If you can't, if you're getting to the level where you're able to get a larger contract, let's say, and then, okay, time to look at an agent, right? But if you're at the level where you don't have that ability yet or haven't done that kind of blow, blow someone's mind, then, then I think if you can handle it yourself or your coach or whoever it is, then I think you're okay. The other aspect I look at two is are you willing or are you known to do pacing okay because i think that's another big component 
is if you have some sort of reputation as a as a rabbit, then an agent comes in handy for getting you rabbit jobs that pay very well at the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I think that's another component of that I think is sometimes sometimes uh, misjudged. I agree. Yeah, I I always tell people, you know, you definitely need an agent if you're trying to run in Diamond League races. Yep. Period. You know, if you're that caliber of athlete, you need an agent. So if you, you know, are going to try to get into a Paris or a Rome or a Prefontaine Classic, that's where an agent comes into play, without a doubt. Um, you know, and it, it's, too, agents, they have jobs, they have livelihoods, and they want to, they need to pay attention to people who are bigger ticket people who are going to get that very large shoe company um, deal who are going to get who warrant appearance fees for races who are trying to get into diamond leagues who are going to get big bonuses on times from their shoe companies so you know you have to remember that too it's like agents just aren't here just to be here and for you to use at your disposal because you think you need one they they assess just as us coaches who coach post please assess do i really want to represent this person do i really want you know is this person going to be worth my time you know, are they going to be someone of value that's going to generate value for my repertoire of athletes that are with, under my representation? So, you know, I think, too, it's like you don't want to waste people's time just yes. because you have an agent and that validates you have an agent. So you're, I guess now you're a professional because you have an agent. Great. You know, but a lot of times I play agent as a post-collegiate coach and a meet director with athletes I work with, getting them the pacing gigs, you know, emailing people up at Harry Jerome and saying, hey, I get it, I'm a meet director, do you guys need to pace her? This person's going to be up there, they would prefer to race, but if they can't get in and race, they're happy to pace instead. You know, um, I think anytime you're trying to, you know, maybe race off the North American continent, especially if you're younger, you might want to think about an agent. I mean, Tommy obviously already had a way of navigating around Europe and kind of knew where the good races are, but most kids out of you know college have no idea about the 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 Diamond League and the you know domestic European um, type type circuit that goes on and where those races are because there's so many happening right now. Most people don't know there's a part one and part two of Europe where there's actually a little break. Yep. in meets in Europe for about three weeks and then they go back to like an August and uh, September finale you know it, it's and so you need that's why it's like important to have a coach who knows those things if you don't have an agent because they're gonna nine times out of ten be a liaison for you who will know okay well you know who knows the scheduling of events of the European circuit or the you know U.S. road mile circuit in the summer or the U.S. road racing circuit in the fall and what that looks like and all those types of things. So if you have someone in your corner who's knowledgeable on that agent or coach, then you're pretty well set up to help guide you. Um, you know other key things about agents are you know exactly that trying to get you into the right meets or the right heat so to speak in the right meet you know that's where that representation is of value because you don't want to be the athlete that's wasting your time 24 hours trying to get you in the right heat you want your coach or agent you know to worry about that for you so that you can just prepare mentally to compete in the, the race you want to compete in so but i mean i know a lot of pacers that i work with for the meets i put on you know, it's just I work right with that athlete. You know, I don't go through the agent because they don't have an agent. 
you know, sometimes I do, but that's very, very few and far between, especially domestically. Um, just because, again, it's more about if you're a Diamond League yep. level caliber of athlete, then it really warrants an agent. Or if you're not a track athlete and you're a road athlete, if you're a consistent top five U.S. athlete on the American road circuit, then that will warrant those things. But the meet director most times, if there are funding opportunities available for travel or hotel, you just emailing them or contacting them, you know, nine times out of ten will be just as effective as, say, the agent doing it as well. And that's so... You know, it's one of those things. I have a lot of good friends who are agents, and they do great jobs. But you just you don't want to waste their time, and you don't want your time wasted um, by having a third party that you have to constantly communicate with or have communicated to you when you could just close the loop yourself and figure it and figure it out. So, again, it's one of those things. Again, like gear or shoe contracts, it's this point of validity that if you have an agent and then you have some type of little equipment stipend or equipment deal or a sponsorship you know, kit deal or something. It makes you feel more validated. But honestly, I always tell people it's not about the shoes. It's about what you're doing them. Yep. No, that's and, a good point. And, he, and you know, we, need, we just need to remember that. Leo Manzano <laughs> is really good, and he was really good when he was Nike. He was really good when he was unsponsored. And he's really good when he was with Hoka. <laughs> you know? And those companies are more benefiting from their association with him than necessarily his association with them. Yeah. And that's what you have to look at is what type of partnership are you having with your sponsors? Is it are you primarily benefiting from them? Because if that's the case, you're probably not going to be sponsored by them for a long time <laughs> because what they're looking for is they're looking for benefit of their association sponsorship of you. You know, and talking about Sponsorships too, you know, maybe I like to give the people what they want and keep it 100 as they say and just get really real and, you know, talk some real dollars and real cents here. Um, you know, the average post-collegiate makes a year from competing is $14,500 in the U.S. Yep. And if you put that in perspective, that is far below the poverty line. <laughs> hey. You know? Yep. I mean... Me and you both could go down the list and name athletes who are NCAA champions or, uh, you know, have all these accolades behind their name who aren't making that much or who came out of college and didn't make that much. I think what people need to realize in the world of track is it's a very dichotomous system, right? If you're the very best of the world, if you're the Usain Bolts of the world, yeah, you make good money, okay? But... As you go down that list, it drops off very, very heavily and very, very quickly. Um, if you think you're coming out of college and going to make a nice, expensive sum, I think you're, you're diluting yourself to a degree. And I think that's not to be discouraging, but I think that's the reality you have to know you're getting into. Yeah, that is, it has to be a conscious choice. You need someone to tell you that. I mean, most... People are like, man, a good deal, like a good good contract is a $10,000 year base contract with some gear, you know, and travel, a small travel stipend of like maybe two grand, and then heavily laced with bonus incentives for time bonuses or placing bonuses at certain U.S. championships. So, you know, I always tell people if you're winning, it will all take care of itself. 
but you have all these people you know training to win the same things because there's all this incentive on the line whether it's prize money from that race you know bonus bonuses in their contracts i mean i know athletes who you know, run a time for 1500 and if, you know, one hundredth of a second is the difference between, you know, no bonus and a $5,000 bonus yep. um, for them. And as a coach, you know, you have to be very aware of that if you're working with that type of athlete or have a coach who is very aware of that and know, you know, how important that is. So, again, it's a lot more business oriented um, if you're trying to solely depend on just running to pay your bills, like you have to be very, very good and very, very fast consistently throughout the year. And that's why you see people go, you know, race indoor and race heavily indoor. And you're like, huh, I don't, why is that? Why are they doing that? That doesn't make sense. Well, it makes dollars and cents. So <laughs> that's why they're doing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because especially for that track only athlete, like that 800 meter person, that, yep. that true, true, true miler. You only get about, you know, you only can run around circles for so long. Now, a distance runner who can do cross, who can do roads, who can do track, who has marathons, who has a lot more diverse portfolio, you can run year-round and have opportunities to make money year-round. But after September, you know, there's a big yep. uh, opportunity for revenue that does not exist for the majority of track and field athletes. And so you really got to hustle from January to September while the ovals are open, otherwise you're gonna be sitting there come Christmas and not be able to buy anyone any presents <laughs> if you don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I think that's something that since we're on contracts that, that people don't really understand. I mean I've I've had athletes who I've guided who we, we have picked certain races, race distances, because we knew they they could hit their bonus structure easily there. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if we do this this race distance, like I'm very confident you can hit this bonus and it'll bump your your yearly salary up, you know, five thousand dollars or seven thousand dollars. And that's a yep. big deal. So it it's sometimes it's like, well, you know, maybe we, we want you to race this, but you know what, we gotta knock this out because this will allow you to live. <laughs> Right. It, yes, exactly. And allow you to fight another day or fight another year. I mean, I know athletes who win a race or win a couple thousands of dollars and, you know, that allows them to train for another year because they won five, six grand extra. And, you know, that's the harsh reality is because most American distance and all distance runners are very intelligent human beings and could be making, you know, six figures working on Wall Street as engineers or as, you know, physical therapists, and yet they choose this, you know, kind of vow of poverty, essentially, <laughs> to chase this dream, and which I'm all for. I mean, I support it as a coach. I support it. I chased it, the dream myself for two and a half years, making ten to $15,000 a year with no health insurance, fresh out of college. I get it. I did it. You know, <laughs> but I gave myself a, a deadline. I said, if I'm not XYZ good by this day in this year then I'm going to walk away from being an athlete and get into something else and that was coaching and meet administration but um, you know the the reality is you have to I think any intelligent athlete has to give themselves a uh, deadline to get certain results otherwise if you just keep chasing it and keep chasing it you'll drive yourself crazy and you'll drive yourself into abject poverty as well so, I mean, it's like being an artist. There's so much passion and emotion, and you can create this, uh, you know, performance that 
is something you'll remember for the rest of your life and might bring value to other people. But at the same time, too, you have to be very honest about you probably 99% of you of the athletes out there are not going to get rich off of being a professional track and field athlete. And it sucks. I wish it wasn't like that, right? You know, but it's, it's the reality of it. Um, yep. It, and again, most people are just hustling to do what they can to live. I mean, I know, again, people who look very professional, who look like they're part of some of the bigger clubs or bigger, you know, heavily sponsored groups. I know people, guys who have, you know, turned down $30,000, $40,000 contracts to just be with this club and this group for free, for nothing on the, the promise that if you run really fast you'll get a bigger deal down the road, which sometimes works in their favor, sometimes doesn't. So it's it's one of those things. It's like, you know, just because you are with a certain shoe company or, or not, it doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to get the best deal. Some shoe companies might have a lot more leverage and might be a lot more res- um, respected or much more desirable, and people will, you know, want to go with them instead of an, a newer startup company that's offering you twice as much. And, you know, I, I always tell people that I work with or who are, um, you know, thinking about coming and moving to Portland, it's like, look, this is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. This is not something you're going to, like, make money off of. You know, if I, I'm, you know, I'm just as good a coach as any other post-collegiate coach out there because we're all really good coaches. That's why we're coaching high-level post-collegiates. Otherwise, no one will work with us and everyone would be hurt. You know, so there's not much variation or differentiation there. You know, if you like my style, if you like who I am, great, great, great. But, you know, it's just you got to understand this is really, really tough. And nine times out of ten, I scare people away. <laughs> <laughs> nine times out of ten, but they just like, they, they flee. You, you know, but, you know, it's funny because I do the same thing. And, and I always give that speech. And, you know, even with people I work with who aren't from Houston or even more so people who are coming to Houston, um, to train because it is tough. But I think that reality is when you do that, like you get the ones, you almost self, uh, self-select self and get the ones who are going to be able to do it for the right reasons and stick around. Um, but I, I think a lot of times is is that reality is never approached because it's, it's always you're the best athlete. Like you're the best athlete coming out of the NCAA or coming out of your conference. So you're always not coddled, but you're always, always that star and no one really tells you the reality of what this sport is about until you have to essentially learn it for yourself. So I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe that's the point of this podcast is to give you some of that reality in it, whether that's from a contract contractual standpoint and whether it's to realize that yeah there's also reductions in in a lot of companies uh contracts which are pretty vicious and Mm -hmm. can turn your life from hey i'm making it to oh my god how am i gonna last the next six six months um but those realities are there and i think the bigger point of it is not to scare people off, but it's to realize, it's to make people realize just as you did when you were, you gave yourself that two and a half years, just as I did when I gave myself those two years during grad school is, it's like, this is going to be tough. Make sure you know what you're getting into. Okay. And do it for the right reasons and have the right process and do your best at setting yourself up to be able to succeed in the system. And if you don't, 
be okay walking away from it. Right. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what I always tell people is you want to enjoy the process. I mean, because the process is where all the memories are going to be made. And, you know, you earn your victories now in the summer, in the off season, when you're not racing, when you're preparing. If you're not willing to sacrifice and really focus now and earn the victory, then, you know, by the time you get to indoor track and outdoor track next year in 2016, it's going to be tough because it's Olympic cycle and everyone gets the ghost of saying, oh man, I want to make the Olympic trials or try to make the Olympics. And people come out of the woodwork and I have to remind people, it's very, very tough to be the top 30 best person in the nation at what you do. And that's essentially what it is at the Olympic trials, right? They take the top 30 best people in each event to compete to be to represent the u.s to be one of the top three and as you kind of go up that mountain and the altitude gets higher and higher and higher and there's just less oxygen to breathe it gets a lot tougher in those you know of weak heart and those of you know who just don't aren't really up to the formidableness of the challenge tend to back down or tend to find a cop out or tend to just you know, uh, dissolve very rapidly. I mean, it's just you got to understand the weight of what you're doing, especially moving from collegiate sector to the post-collegiate sector. I mean, you have Division Two, II, Division Three, Division One, NEI, four different divisions of competitiveness for a collegiate. So you can be a multiple-time All-American at D2 or NEI or be a national champ at that, and that's great. But it doesn't always guarantee that then you're going to be at the U.S. trials or the U.S. championships the following year. And yep. I'd even say NCAA Division I champions, like, who are nowhere to be found the following year and who had these big, great contracts, and, oh, my gosh, everything's well taken care of. And for every reason, it shows you just how really hard it is. They're training at such a high level. There's just so much on the line. It can be very, very tough. And... You see that with a lot of runners who are very cyclical. You know, last year, no, you know, didn't really competitive. This year, oh my God, super competitive. And the people who are consistently competitive and consistently competing at a high level, those are very few and far between, and they're really the exception rather than the rule because of just how tough it is to be competitive on the U.S. scene nowadays as a post-collegiate middle distance and distance runner. Yep, exactly. I mean, if I if I could sum it up for people who might look into it, is is look at those athletes who have done it year in and year out, and see what they're doing right and what they're doing with their environment. I mean, we've named a couple on this podcast. Will Lear is a great example. Um, Leo Manzano is a great example. Uh, you know, on the women's side, Katie Mackey's always in the hunt. Gabe Grunewald's oh, yeah. always in the hunt. Like. Those people who are always there year after year and might not, they might break through, they might not, but they're always there. That's probably the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Because if you go back and look, you'll see people rise, you'll see people fall, you'll see people disappear. And our sport is very cutthroat to always be even one of those top 30 who make it to the US champs like Wizzo has, you know, for mm-hmm. the past seven or eight years. That's incredibly difficult. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. Like, it, it is insanely difficult to be that consistent because our sport is crazy with right. everything. So, it's, it's, I think 
is look at those athletes who consistently do that as a model to see like, all right, how am I going to do this? Right. Um, yeah. And I always tell people like the one question you need to ask yourself getting into this is, are you willing to put in a lot of work, make a lot of sacrifice to blow people's minds? And are you going to be okay if you don't yep. for whatever reason? Like, if you're really not process-oriented, if you're really result-oriented, this might not be the thing to pursue for the next several years of your life. But if the process, if every day is like, you know, no matter your situation, if you're working part-time at a running shoe store or have an internship or at a company or working at a coffee shop, but if you wake up every day and you're jacked to train and it's like Christmas and you're pumped because either you have a great coach, a great environment, a great support network, a great post-collegiate team to work with, you have some things that get you excited every single day through the drudgery and you keep top of mind that your end game is to blow people's minds by doing something really special and something, whoa, 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 oh my God, where did this person come from out of nowhere? Oh my goodness. If that's what you're going after, you're going to, you know, at least have a better opportunity and a better chance of being successful than the people who are worrying about, oh, how much am I making? Am I who? What shoe company do I am I sponsored by? Oh my, my contracts this, oh this and that. Those stuff become distractions really quickly, um, but they're vital necessities in order to be able to do this. So you just got to figure out what situation's best for you and have a lot of people in your corner to counsel you, um, you know, very honestly about that, and then. Just remember why you love doing it. I mean, so many athletes I talk to, oh, I just love running, I just love training, I just love competing, and hold on to that near and dear and tight, but also, too, just understand the caliber of excellence at this level is just so much more high than anything you've ever experienced, whether you're an NCAA champion, NCAA record holder, you know, or uh, seventh guy in your cross-country team. Uh, you, you just it, the weight of it has to be communicated. And if someone's not communicating that, that way to you, or it hasn't been communicated to you, hopefully this podcast episode has done that. Because we just we again we're not here to crush dreams. We're just here to give you a big spanking on the butt and just say, hey, this is reality. <laughs> that, that's about it, man. I I don't think I can end it any any better than that. So. Um, Yep. Hopefully that does it. As as John said, it's it's not about crushing dreams. It's about making sure people know what they're getting into. But beyond that is making sure people have this nice foundation of understanding of why they're doing it. Okay. I think that's the biggest thing you said was like, you have to know why you're enjoying this sport and what makes it tick for you and what makes you tick and why you keep doing it. And you have to keep that in mind because so many people, I, th- I think, sometimes get jaded and lose that. And that's when things go wrong. Like yeah. you have to remember why you're doing it. And for the vast, vast majority of people, it's not to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> art, art really is about getting rich. You know? exactly. Just remind people that I, art I, is really about. I mean, I, coaching isn't either. I mean, that's no. why why we're in this too. We're not we're yeah. not in it to get rich. I'm sure both of us, yeah. with our educations, could be doing uh, much much more uh, productive or not productive, but uh, wealth wise um, money. Yes, much jobs, more lucrative, lucrative yes. jobs. Yes. yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we're essentially we're. We're teachers as coaches and athletes are artists and it's a relationship of teachers and artists and teaching is very intrinsically rewarding. Being an artist is intrinsically very rewarding and the reality is things are highly intrinsically rewarding 
often pay very, very little. <laughs> so, <laughs> very, very true. Well, yes. we'll we'll end it with that. Well, thanks okay. a lot, John. Um, good chatting as always. Yes. All right. Until next time, everybody. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.